I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Hello, my friend. Been a while. We still have not made it back into the studio together. I am really now chomping at the bit to actually do a real live show with my co-host rather than trying to do this via electronic communication. So I want to say that the flight safety detectives are still out there. We're still working and, um, and trying to get as much information as we can on not only current events and accidents and that kind of stuff, but of course, we're going to be getting back to what we do best, and that is dissecting old accidents to give the lessons learned and provide some value to our community, to at least our aviation listeners, with our interpretation, our dissection, our experience, skills, abilities, and knowledge, so that we can improve aviation safety. So with that, John, how you doing today? I'm doing fine. I mean, still locked down and. Uh... It's getting pretty old, to be honest. I'm hoping they start loosening it up. The thing that I miss most is uh, the restaurants. Since I don't, I don't cook, my M.O. for the last 10 years, since, my, uh, I, since I lost my wife's medical condition, is uh, I eat out all the time. So this has really put a cramp in my uh, diet. Well, that kind of concerns me because now I may not recognize you because you you're going to be a shadow of your own self. You may be you may be the thin man. <laughs> yeah, not not quite thin, but I I have lost a bunch of weight. Well, good. Good. See, it's heart healthy for you. I'm glad to hear that, John. Maybe this is the benefit of COVID-19 for you. It might be. It might be recognizing that my diet stunk eating out in <laughs> restaurants was too much. Yeah, I know. But you do miss that socialism and, and all of that kind of stuff. So it is one of those things where, uh, you know, being social, being out in the environment. I mean, just even up at the airport, you know, eating at a local restaurant where, you know, there's pilots and, and other folks there, you know, you miss that camaraderie and that kind of stuff. So I've been going still going to the airport a couple of times a week and hanging around, but there's nobody there. Yeah. Well, one of the things that this pandemic has done for you and I, of course, is not only doing these shows through the electronic means, but we're getting a lot of feedback and we definitely appreciate it. And I know that you had read recently some of the feedback, John, and that's really going to be the basis for this show. So why don't you give the audience a little flavor for that? and We'll get into it. All right. So the comments were across the board, but one of the uh, areas that they 
seem to be hitting over and over and over is more information about the accidents and accident investigation and how the NTSB uh, does this or that. So what I thought I would do right now is just let's walk through. The bell just went off, all right? We've had an airplane go down, and it's a major accident. It's not a GA accident, so it's a major airliner-type accident. And, Greg, you were on the GO team. Your name was on the top of the list as the investigator in charge. So tell the folks what that list is. Who's on that list? Typically with the investigative team, you went in rotation. So there'd always be an, an accident investigator or the investigator in charge, the IIC. And then there was a list of subject matter experts that the board had, whether it was ATC, airports, structures, systems, power plants, aircraft performance, all of the the requisite disciplines were represented on this go team list. So everybody was on standby. And if the bell went off, comm center would notify the investigator in charge and then get all of the folks that were on that list up on a bridge line so that we could be briefed on the nature and circumstances as we know them at that time about the accident, and then determine what the launch plan is going to be. Let's talk about that brief for a second, because that's something that nobody has ever mentioned. All right, so typically, who gives the brief, and where does the information come from? Well, the information for the brief can come from a variety of sources. A lot of times, it's from the FAA, because a lot of the notifications that are made on an accident or serious incident that the board launches on is usually the notification from the FAA. So they have obtained either out of their local regional offices or through their particular FISDOs that are multiple around the country. They'll get information, so they'll have that that person or persons up on the uh, on the bridge to give a briefing about the nature and circumstances type of aircraft, what information they know at that time. A lot of times we will also have local folks, that is uh, police, fire, rescue, who may be involved to be able to provide to the team some initial information with regard to the environment that they're going to be working in. Did the airplane crash out in an open field? Did it crash in you know the middle of town? Is it on a highway? Things like that. And a lot of times we can give feedback to those first responders through the local police fire rescue. That is, we're going to be launching the team. Here's our estimated time of arrival. This is what we expect. We're going to have a local or field investigator on scene to help coordinate the activities, stake down the wreckage, things like that. So we try to provide not only an introduction as to who we are and what we're going to do from the perspective of the NTSB, but we want to at least get as much information as we can from a team perspective, because when we are en route and typically when we launch, we launch and we're, we're flown to the accident site by the FAA on one of their aircraft. This then gives the team an opportunity to coordinate and choreograph. Okay, this is what's going to happen. As soon as the wheels hit the ground, this is what's going to happen. This is who's going to do what. This is what needs to be done. And depending on the time of day, it's either going to happen that day when the airplane lands or it could be pushed off into the early hours of the next morning. It all depends on uh, on when the team would arrive on scene. 
All right, so let's back up a second and let's go back into that that briefing. Now, most people don't realize that the NTSB has a 24-7 command center that's located right in the building. And it is, it's a, a good-sized room. It's sometimes just one person, sometimes multiple people. It also has a whole battery of TVs, monitors. They monitor every news channel, all the major network news. Some of them direct with, via satellite. They've got all the cable news channels up there. They run, they're on 24-7. And those are the people that normally get the initial notification. Those are the people that are also pulling all the data from all the different sources and feeding it into the IIC and also the Director of Accident Investigation. And the board member. And the board member who's assigned. And you bring up a good point, John. I mean, because the, the, the folks up in the comm center are monitoring the news channels. They are able to get a lot of stuff, especially since the news media is out there hunting down witnesses and trying to get information. That information becomes valuable to the team, not only from the standpoint of identifying survivors, witnesses, things like that, but it may give better, more timely information that will be of value when the team lands with regard to possibly weather or circumstances that may not have come up in the initial briefing. And also, that command center has a good rapport with many of the state police organizations around the country. In fact, they provide, through the head of that section, usually for years has been providing training to the state police organizations around the country. So they are familiar with them. They're intimate with the leadership. They have the right phone numbers to make the calls. So there's that whole piece of communication is really an integral part of the investigation, but it's entirely invisible to the outside world. It is very critical to, to that information flow. And the big thing for the public is the fact that this is a well-choreographed dance. Any kind of major investigation that occurs, any kind of major accident, it's chaos with the fact that, and if you looked at Pakistan recently with uh, the A320 that went down, I mean, this that airplane crashed in a city right in the middle of town. And so chaos ensues. Well, there is two parts of these stories. One is the initial response, first responders getting survivors, dealing with the devastation that has occurred at the accident site. But behind that is the fact that the NTSB or the respective organization, we're just going to focus on the NTSB. The NTSB has got to have a well-choreographed dance so that when they arrive on scene, they can exude a level of confidence in the process. That is, the board member is going to get off the airplane, and the board member and or the investigator in charge may immediately address the press as to what's, what's going to transpire now that they are on scene. And that's the, the benefit of your role, John, and I think that that is a very important role. People just see you as the, quote, talking head for the safety board. But you serve as a board member a multiple of functions other than just talking to a TV camera. Well, no question about it. And you run interference sometimes for the investigation because people, uh, state police, the local police, uh, sometimes can overstep their bounds. Uh, we've also had issues with the FBI and TSA coming in to try to take control over pieces of it. And it's not that they're bad people. They just don't understand the process. And they're trained to 
you know, police officers are trained to take control. So they sometimes they, they try to take control or sometimes it's just an attitude that you think they're trying to take control. But in any event, it can lead to some irritation. And one of the roles that the board member plays is to run interference of that with the IIC and the rest of the team members. Because we want an unfettered investigation. We don't want anybody making mistakes because of misunderstandings between local political or state-level political operatives in our role in investigation. And many people don't realize that the authority that the NTSB has to conduct investigations is pretty broad, and it's all-encompassing. And if we look at just aviation, there is a term of art that resides in the aviation function of the NTSB in which the NTSB has primacy. That is, they have the authority to command and control the site of an accident that occurred. They are able to commandeer whatever they need to commandeer as far as information and people, witnesses, utilize as many of the resources as possible because that is the authority that was given to the agency, especially in the aviation side of the agency, to conduct its mission. And that is to investigate, to collect all the facts, conditions, and circumstances of an accident for the purpose of determining probable cause and improving safety. And so the board for an aviation accident, if an airplane crashes on a highway and it blocks a major highway and the local folks want to you know, scrape the wreckage off and get the highway open, the board, all they say is no. That is law. You're not doing anything till we show up and we give you the okay. And and like you were talking about, that's a lot of times where the board member comes in, where you do have major issues that develop with the local politicals or the uh, crash fire rescue folks that me as the investigator in charge, I'm the technician. I'm the guy who has to choreograph all of the activities to get the investigation started. I can turn that function over to you to run the interference, negotiate, educate, and things like that. And that is really the purpose of the board member, other than to be the spokesperson for the investigative process while on scene. Yes, most people don't realize. In fact, sometimes the board members themselves don't realize it. You know, we we get board members every few years. We'll get a new board member. They sometimes don't realize just what their role is, what they do, and they, they rely upon what they're being briefed by, usually public affairs people, and uh, it's missed to, on some of them. You know, I had, I had the benefit of having been involved with a number of accidents long before I came for, with the board, so I knew the process, so I didn't have any problems. Because uh, I had to put you in your place because you were in the role representing an organization other than the NTSB and one of my investigations. <laughs> and as they say, we met by accident and it was history after that. We, uh, we had some entertainment during that investigation and, um, and our friendship, I think, really started to take off. And it's been like that ever since. So I'm, I'm very blessed that uh, we met by accident and it's continued on. And I can't even tell you how many years. Jeez, I don't even want to think how many years. We're both getting older. Nah, <laughs> so, not me. No, I know. You're going backwards. You started the clock backwards. Now, That's so. what my mother did. I, I'm going to stick to it. Every year, she, every birthday, she, she got younger. The role of the board and, and why when they land that airplane and the team gets off, 
the reason things happen so quickly and are pretty well structured is because one, the board's been doing it for so long. The folks that are involved already have a very good understanding of what their particular role is going to be or their mission is going to be soon as the airplane touches down. They don't flounder around. They know that we're going to get things, especially if it, there's a command post set up. Folks are going to go out. Certain folks are going to go out to the accident site, get basically a site survey, understand what, what it's going to take to, to do their respective job. The investigator in charge is going to be dealing with all of the logistics for the team of getting the uh, command center set up, where people are going to meet, where we're going to have our daily organizational meetings and our daily briefings at night. Of course, those kinds of behind-the-scenes activities are very cumbersome. When I did ValueJet, I didn't sleep really for the first three weeks we were on scene because during the day I had a full schedule dealing with not only the issues that developed because of the accident, but we had to come up with creative ways because the airplane had crashed 12 miles from the nearest highway. We had to move people out there. I had to employ the services of a variety of different organizations, both state, federal, and even the military. So there was a lot of that kind of thing going on. I interacted with the board member because while I was in one place, the board member is in another place having to deal with issues. And then at night, we would get all of the local officials together to figure out how we were going to conduct business the next day. And everything falls on the NTSB. Once you get everybody reined in and they understand who's in charge, now it's just a it's a choreographed dance, but you got to do it in advance. You cannot do these things on the fly. You can't wing it. And you've been there, Don. You've watched good investigations and some that weren't so good. That's for sure. You went over lightly a couple of pieces of the preparation that often never get spoken about. And one is you talked about the command center, but normally the command center, as soon as the is the communication center that the NTSB has, or the command center, depending on how you want to call it, immediately will start looking for hotels and immediately will call and, and get 25 or 30 rent-a-cars because it's easier to get the, the 25 or 30 at the, at the initial time of the accident and release them, the ones that you don't need, than it is to get five of them and then need 20 and there's none available. So th that responsibility is rest with our command center to get the hotel, get the, the rent-a-cars. But we also have some other support staff, and it's the, it's the uh, clerical staff that comes, the people that, that arrange for copy machines to be available, paper, all the shipping. We, ha we have boxes full of material that get shipped with every accident, with paper, pens, all the bits and pieces you need. In fact, at one point in time when when phones were not in everybody's pocket, we actually had phones in those kits. Yeah, you bring up a good point because the only thing that the public really sees is possibly part of the team that shows up on TV, whether it's the board member, the investigator in charge, or possibly some of the subject matter experts that respond. But the real work is done by the administrative staff that is supporting the team both on scene and back in D.C. or or if it, it happens to be operating out of a local office, one of the local regional offices by the board. 
But the fact is, is that when I was doing it eons ago, it was left up to the NTSB investigator in charge, not a comm center, the investigator in charge to try and put all of that logistical support together. And that became very burdensome. Fortunately, through evolution, the comm center came into existence and they were able to pick up a lot of that so that the team could focus on the mission at hand. And that was to go out and, and start the investigative process ASAP. But uh, it is, a, I mean, without that background logistical support, these investigations would take forever. Yeah, you'd lose the first day, day and a half just trying to set everything up. Like I said, rent-a-cars and hotel rooms disappear real quick in today's uh, 24-hour news cycle. The, the news people at the accident site for the first few days probably is two or three to one as compared to F NTSB investigators. Not counting Alper and all the other groups, the companies. I mean, easily the first two days can have 150 people on a big accident there. And then they get peeled off. The, the companies themselves peel off some people in, the, in the organizations like Alper and Pratt & Whitney and Boeing. They come with a gaggle of folks. And as soon as they get the direction of what's going on, they peel them off and send them back home and leave only the ones with the, the pertinent skills and expertise behind to do the work. And one of the other key aspects is the fact that the FAA, besides being an automatic party to the uh, NTSB's investigations, they too provide logistical support for the board. One, and probably one of the, the major aspects, is the fact that they provide almost instantaneous travel for the team. The, because the FAA has a, a number of airplanes at their disposal, they operate uh, the airplane to move the team. So when I've gone on accidents, uh, I don't know how many times I traveled on the FAA's G4, which was capable of carrying 18 people. We would put our NTSB team on board with the board member. We would have FAA, not only their pilots, but we had the FAA investigator in charge who would be working with the team on these accidents. That was what would really saved a lot of time because if the board had to try to move an entire team, you know, 15, 16, 17 people via the airlines, you're at the disposal of the airline, their schedule, their seating and, and all of that kind of stuff. And if it was a long trip, whether it was cross country and we've launched teams on major investigations overseas as well, you'd be there forever trying to get everybody there in a timely manner to get the process started. So the FAA plays a very key role in the initial response of the NTSB team by providing relatively quick transportation. But I will give you one story, and that was when I was the investigator in charge on a 747 that had crashed in Guam. It was Korean Air Flight 801. Guam is not an easy place to get to. The FAA couldn't provide us any kind of uh, support with any aircraft that could get us to Guam. So we went to the next best thing, called the Air Force. We were able to make arrangements with the Air Force to move the team on two different aircraft. We started out of Andrews Air Force Base on a, uh, a C-141 that happened to be going from Andrews to Fairchild Air Force Base up in Washington. Team got on the airplane. It was not the most comfortable flight since there is no business class on a C-141. But we got the team to Fairchild. 
And then they put us on a KC-135 cargo refueling aircraft to move the team then the rest of the way to Guam. That was the most expeditious way we could get there. There was just no way we were ever going to get on an airline to do that. So we were very fortunate to get the support of the Air Force to move the team. So the board has those those resources at their disposal. And so it is one of those things where a, a timely response is critical because the sooner the team can get there, the sooner the process starts, the more valuable the information will be because as time goes on and you and I'm, you and I have had this discussion in our previous podcast that there is volatile information that tends to disappear in minutes, hours, and days. The big piece that always gets missed is we also have the attention of a lot of people. And I'm not talking about the average citizen or the average pilot, but we have the attention of the chief pilots and the vice presidents of the operations and the presidents and the, and the board members of the respective companies. They all want to know what's happening. If you wait a year and come up with the information about what happened, they've moved on by then, right? So it's important that we get anything that's really important to us and as accident investigators, we get that out as quickly as we can because we, we can drive some serious change if we get good, accurate information quickly to all the parties. And that's the whole purpose is to improve aviation safety. So you know, getting that information. And if it's something that is safety critical that needs to be addressed immediately, whether it's putting an airplane on the ground for whatever reason, or at least putting out an airworthiness directive or some sort of notification for an airline or an operator or even a manufacturer to be on the lookout for, that's the purpose of of the timeliness of the initiation of the investigation and the development of the facts, conditions, and circumstances so that improvements to aviation safety won't be delayed. Good morning, John. The ground is Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Okay, so let's talk a minute about uh, selecting the the uh, the members of each group because I always like to do this one with you because you got me in a lot of trouble when I was with the USA. Of course, <laughs> that was my role is to get you in trouble <laughs> because one of the one of the roles of the investigator in charge is to determine who will be a party or a participant in the NTSB's investigation. A party to the investigation is an organization or a person who can contribute a level of expertise that the safety board may not have. The safety board is a jack of all trades and a master of none. They don't have all the expertise on how United Airlines, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, or anybody else that has an airline name does business. So the organization involved in the accident will provide a level of expertise. And it's not just throwing out an attorney or, or, or a pilot or even the president of the company. There are specific qualifications for specific roles and tasks that the board will conduct. So in the operations group, you're not going to just have a run-of-the-mill pilot. There are qualifications. You have to have a pilot who is qualified and current on the piece of equipment. The safety board doesn't like to have management pilots necessarily because management of the air carrier, management of the flight department 
is going to be under the scrutiny to determine whether or not there were policies, procedures, training issues, or whatever that may have caused or contributed to the accident. But they do want a seasoned line pilot that is qualified, that can be there as an instant resource for the investigators, the operations and human factors investigators, to be able to ask questions of, okay, here's your policy. Can you give us what this policy means? And things like that. Where I got you in trouble (laughs) is that is the IIC. The IIC makes the determination as to who the specific individual or individuals will be who participate on each of the group activities developed by the board. The one thing that the board will not permit are insurance folks or potential litigants in the investigative process, i.e. they will not allow people from a general counsel's office, the attorneys or folks like that, or even executive management to participate as the party representative on the board's investigation. And during the course of the organizational meeting, where that's the first meeting the board has, where all the players get together who believe they should have some role in the investigation, The investigator in charge makes an introductory statement, talks about the purpose of the investigation, the role of the party, goes on through this spiel, and then starts to make basically a roll call of who the parties are. Of course, it's the FAA, the airline, the manufacturer, possibly an engine manufacturer, and it goes right down the line. And everybody stands up as their respective organization is called to identify who their representative will be, who will be their version of a of an IIC. That is, who's going to be the lead spokesperson to the board IIC from that particular organization. And then each of the players on the subgroups from that organization will be named with their qualifications. It was entertaining when I got to you. (laughs) It was easy. Well, yeah, because I knew what your qualifications were. I knew who you were, so it was like almost automatic. But in some of the cases where you have executive management who shows up from the organization and they stand up, introduce themselves, and the IIC says, thank you very much. Will you politely just walk out the door because you're not going to be in this organization or investigation. I had a few folks that believed that they should have been anointed or allowed to participate immediately in these groups, but they did not have any kind of subject matter expertise. And that led to a lot of issues, but that is the the role and that is the authority that the investigator has from the NTSB to pick and choose who's going to provide the best information or be the best resource for the board to conduct its mission. All right. So after we've chosen all of our people, we usually just send them out with their appropriate team leaders and they go off to the accident site and start doing their thing. But the team leader or the, the group chairman, as they're called, is always going to be an NTSB employee, a subject matter expert. The board will never anoint or delegate that authority to anybody else. So if there's an operations group 
it's going to be an NTSB operations investigator. If there's a meteorological group, it's going to be an NTSB meteorologist leading that group. It is not going to be delegated off to the FAA or somebody else. Okay, so they now just spent the day out at the scene, and you are at the scene normally too, especially the first day. And then uh, by early evening, by 5 o'clock usually, everybody has found their way back to the hotel command center to explain what happens then. So after the day of work, there is a debrief called the progress meeting that occurs at the end of the day. It's where all of the folks that had um, done whatever respective activity they were performing that day all get back together again. And it really is a sharing of information from each respective group, what they did, what they were able to develop or accomplish, what information they gathered. And they share that with the entire group because we found throughout the years that in these progress meetings, not only do we understand what that particular group did that day as far as their current activities, but what they're going to do in the days subsequent to that as far as what more work needs to be done. But the real benefit is that a lot of times when these groups are briefing in their activities that they did, the information that they developed, there's a cross-pollinization. One of the perfect examples I use when I teach acts investigation was ValueJet because we had an onboard fire because of a bunch of what they call O2 canisters or oxygen generators that were being carried in the cargo hold. And at first, everybody was operating in a silo. So each of the groups would brief their respective activities as it related to operations and weather and fire and all sorts of things. It wasn't until we got well into the investigation a week or so that the human factors investigator was listening to the briefing and happened to ask a question about an item that was on the aircraft manifest, asking a simple, very simple question, what is an oxygen canister? Well, of course, those of us in the know all, you know, it's like, what are you talking about? It's an oxygen, it's an oxygen cylinder. It's got a mask on it. You breathe out of it kind of thing. But it wasn't until we really started to dissect the words and then backtrack it against what was actually being carried that we found out that it wasn't oxygen cylinders, but in fact, these oxygen generators, which really changed the complexion of the investigation based on one simple question by the human factors expert for the group to explain to him what's an oxygen canister as it was written on a manifest. Boy, that was a big turning point too. Oh, it changed the entire direction as far as what the basis for the fire was because we had been focused on electrical systems because of previous issues on DC-9s with high voltage lines and and generators and that kind of stuff having caused in-flight fires. Yes. All right. So now that process is repeated day after day after day until at some point we reach, come to an end and somewhere between three and five days, usually all the groups will finish up. They'll write up a bunch of reports for each group. The reports will then be circulated among all the groups 
And now we're at the end. What does the IIC do then? The IIC responsibility, and it changed since I was there. It used to be the IIC's responsibility to actually write the draft report, the blue, what's called the blue cover report. That is the final report that's published. Now there's a team of technical report writers that have taken on that role. And so they will take all of the group chairman reports with their substantiating documentation, and they will write a technical draft of the final report. Once they have it in basically a condition stem to stern, that is from the opening paragraph with regard to the history of flight to the end of the factual report, they will then circulate that amongst each of the respective group chairmen and let them go over the report to make sure that things that should be said are said, things that need more context or need more discussion. All of that is is handled in this first round. Once there is a workable draft that everybody can agree on, then the factual part of the report is farmed out to the parties to have the parties ensure that the report is factually correct, especially if there are elements that maybe it's a, a certain procedure or policy or something that came from the airline or the manufacturer just to make sure that it's been characterized properly or correctly from a factual standpoint, not analysis, just facts in the report. The parties do have an opportunity to chime in. They can say, well, you know, it's our belief that you should add this or take this out. It doesn't have any relevance. And, and so they can provide comments. The board will then take those comments, incorporate them as necessary. And then once that draft is finalized, there's also an analysis that is now the board's responsibility. And again, it comes from each of the group chairmen doing an analysis of their respective areas of subject matter expertise. And that is the interpretation of the facts, conditions, and circumstances, which then is combined to create the board's analysis of here are all the facts, here's our interpretation of those facts, and how they fall out as far as the probable cause. That is the direct causal factors and then those factors that are contributing. And then, of course, any safety recommendation that may come out of each of those respective groups as far as improvements to aviation safety, whether it's a policy change, procedures change, maybe there's a, a manufacturing defect that needs to be corrected, or the, even the FAA who needs to enhance a, a regulation or a policy. Okay. Well, I think you've done a good job of explaining the IIC's role of the on-scene We'll save the public hearing and the sunshine hearing for a later podcast. And those two hearings fill out the record on the case of the public hearing. And in the case of the sunshine hearing, that's where the board members meet. All of them meet for the first time and discuss the report in the open. Because the law says that they can't meet more than one-on-one -on -one without calling it a meeting, and it has to be published, and there's a lot of criteria, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, and that part of the process is is extremely critical because that's what's going to put forth the final board product with regard to ensuring all the facts, conditions, and circumstances have been collected 
properly analyzed. But that is going to be the signature document of the board. So that, that is a very important process. All right. And we'll cover that on a, on a future podcast. All right, folks, I'm glad that we could help fill in some of those questions. A, a number of you have asked questions around the process. So that's our attempt to answer your questions. And Greg, I'll let you close it. Well, thanks for those comments. We appreciate you providing us feedback so that we can incorporate that into our podcast. You can always contact us through our website at flightsafetydetectives.com. Definitely email myself and John through with our email, flightsafetydetectives with an S on the end at gmail.com. John and I get each of the emails. We both respond. We try to respond directly, but we also pick these emails so that we can use them on the show and try and answer these questions. So we appreciate you providing us the feedback. And again, tell us what you like, what you don't like. We're open. You're not going to hurt our feelings. And if you want us to explain something or come up with a subject that you think would be of interest to not only yourself, but the audience, John and I will definitely take a look and research it and absolutely discuss it. So we appreciate your support. We always looking for donors and sponsors. So, uh, and again, Whoever your podcast provider is, please give us a, a rating. We always appreciate that because that helps us improve the show as well. So with that, my friend, I look forward to hopefully seeing you sometime this year. That would be 2020. I'm not looking forward to seeing you in 2021. I want to see you this year so that we can do uh, our live shows and, um, and our video shows together because electronic technology just doesn't do your looks any good. So. <laughs> <laughs> have to, I, so, I don't have to powder my uh, shiny dome. There you go. So with that, I will sign us off with our famous closing saying, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org. And wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening. At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com careers and apply now.